Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Do you want your life to count for something? I mean, I think most of us say, yeah, we want our lives to count, right? We, we want it to matter. And oftentimes we're driven along through life by that, even if we aren't conscious of it and we're making decisions and sometimes we're trying to find, uh, make our lives matter, but in places and ways that aren't gonna do it, aren't gonna cut it. Uh, They aren't God's ways. But we want our lives to matter. I want my life to matter. And, And I mean, haven't you, we've all, I think we have all at some point in time in our lives Uh, been going along, doing something, working hard at something, you know, maybe we're stressed and busy, and at some point you stop and say, you look at what's happening, you say, well, what's the point? Right, I mean, have you been there? Right, it's like, what, why did I do all that? And, And so we don't wanna reach the end of our lives where we're sitting there, you know, alone, not able to do much, and sit there and say, what does my life matter? That's a bad place to be, isn't it? I mean, people need a sense of purpose. I need a sense that, that I'm doing things that are important because when you aren't, I mean, man, that's, that's a recipe for starting to become hopeless. And when people lose hope, they end up in really bad places and sometimes end up taking their own lives. It's how, how important this is. And so we want to matter. We want to know that our lives have purpose. Well, how do we do that? Well, the story we're gonna look at today addresses this issue, we'll see this issue there, okay? And God has some good answers for us there. It's not all the answers, but we're gonna see some really important things there today. So we come down, this is the last sermon in our series, A Great Cloud of Witnesses, the last sermon uh, for the summer. And uh, just wanna do, uh, take you on a little journey here to see where we've gone in the world, okay? So let's put that first map up, if you would. So we know the modern Middle East, we've already talked about that and seen that, and so let's go to the uh, next slide. We saw that Abraham had left this area and traveled up here and then eventually came down into what was then called the land of Canaan. Go ahead and go to the next one. And then we saw that our stories move with uh, Jacob and his sons moving to Egypt and they're there for several hundred years and then they come out of Egypt in the Exodus, cross the Red Sea, and then spend 40 years out here in this wilderness and eventually they come into the promised land. Go ahead. And so the stories that we were looking at after that were primarily happening in what we would consider the land of Israel. Okay, go on. All right, so we saw, we got to Solomon, we saw that Solomon's kingdom extended way beyond this. It went down to the part of Egypt and all up here and around. Uh, and that his wisdom was known far and wide. People came from around the world, in fact, uh, next uh, slide here. Uh, the Queen of Sheba came from down here, all the way up here, because she had heard about him. And great testimony for the Lord, what she saw. Go on. All right. And so then we saw after Solomon that there is a division in the kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, the story of Elijah takes place in the northern kingdom when we looked at that. And so what we find is that God judged them the northern kingdom and had them taken captive into Babylon right around 600 AD, which is modern Iraq, okay? 
And now the southern kingdom, go on the next slide, also eventually uh, disobeyed God, and, and so he ended up taking them captive as well into Babylon. Now, what happens is Babylon is defeated and overtaken by the Persians, okay? Go ahead to that slide. And so we see that the story moves from Babylon to a place called Shushan in uh, modern Iran, which was Persia. Now, at some point in this process, there were about 50,000 Jews who returned to Israel, okay? So not a lot of them, but they had returned. And the story we're gonna look at today is probably 50, 60 years after that, okay? Uh, close to 500 AD. And so the story goes back here to Shushan, and we see Esther in Shushan. And that is where our story takes place today. So, uh, let me see here. Yes. So four main characters in our story today. The first one is the king, King Ahasuerus. Uh, probably King Xerxes in history, okay? Uh, and he was a, the, the leader of a huge empire, but he was almost like a crazy man, just driven. And, and at one point he, he took his armies and he was trying, to, he wanted to build a bridge, a floating bridge across this sea area to get into Greece and attack Greece. And uh, the sea didn't cooperate. The storm came, the winds came, and blew it all away and messed it up, so he didn't. So his solution, he was so angry, he commanded a bunch of his soldiers to take their, their whips and to whip the sea. Punish the sea. I mean, he's kind of a you know, crazy man, you know, and, and anybody crossed him, boom, dead immediately. So very, very powerful and somewhat irrational and impulsive, okay? Uh, the next person in our story is a man named Haman. And he was probably what we would consider to be a bureaucrat. <laughs> uh, and he somehow rather manages to get in good favor with, with the king and get appointed to a very high position. We, um, he, and actually he becomes the second in command. Second in command in the country. And he's a very pragmatic man and he's gonna do what he has to do to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The third person that we're gonna see is, is a man named Mordecai. Now Mordecai was one of the Jews who had been taken captive, actually probably a descendant of one of the Jews who had been taken captive. Uh, he was a very strong Jewish man and he um, was somehow rather involved and connected. I don't know if he was a go-between or what, but he had connections there at the palace. And before the story's over, he actually becomes elevated very high. And uh, we aren't, I don't know if we'll see that today or not, but he does. What, what's interesting is in some old Persian documents, okay? They, they had what they call cuneiform tablets. It looks something like this with that kind of writing. Uh, anyway, there is a record of an administrator in the kingdom named Marduka. Okay, it sounds very close to what? Mordecai, all right? So we actually probably find historical reference to Mordecai there. And then our fourth character is Esther. Uh, she is a young woman, she is Mordecai's cousin, although she is much younger than Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai is a lot older. In fact, Esther's parents had died, and what had happened is her older cousin Mordecai had taken her in as his own daughter and had raised her, okay? And so that, these are the main characters. And now here's, here's the setting, and here's how this story comes together. The, the book starts off with King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, uh, 
he's having a huge party and he puts his wife, the queen, in a very, very difficult situation. And she refuses to cooperate with him in that setting. Anyway, so he gets so mad and, and he ends up deposing her. She's gone. And so they come up with, how are we going to deal with this? They say, well, let's, let's have a beauty contest to find a new queen. Now, understand that the king had multiple wives in a harem. But uh, the one that was being deposed was really high up there. It had been one of his favorites, and so he wants to replace her. And so they have this beauty contest. Well, Mordecai tells Esther, you've got to go do this, okay? You've got to go do this. And why, I don't know for sure. <laughs> but he said, you've got to go do this. And so she did, and it's a long process, and, she, and the king chose her to be that special wife. And so she was for a while, but it isn't too long before um, she probably begins to fade from prominence and, you know, because they said he's got all these wives and so she's kind of being left out. And um, so that, that's what's happening. Now, Haman, as I told you earlier, he gets promoted above all of the other government leaders, gets promoted. He is a second under the king, and he thinks he's pretty big stuff. And everybody else is afraid of him, okay? You can tell that, the, the, because wherever he goes, they all get down on their face and bow and like cringe before him. Everybody except for one person. And that one person was Mordecai. You know, he just isn't doing it. And everybody's worried, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing it? And he explains to them, and the Bible doesn't give us an in-depth uh, uh, explanation, but he explains it because I'm a Jew. And so from his perspective as a Jew, I'm not gonna give this kind of adoration to a man. Not going to do that. And so he doesn't do that. Well, Haman finds out about this, and Haman is really, really upset. And as the people are talking to him, they explain to him, well, this is because he's a Jew. This is why he doesn't do it. And so Haman, rather than just get rid of Mordecai, says, you know what? We're going to get rid of all of them, all the Jews around the whole kingdom we're going to get rid of. Now, to give you an idea what he was talking about, let's look at the kingdom of Persia. Okay, it is huge. It stretches all the way from India over here, all the way up to Greece over there and through Egypt and up through all the Turkmenistans and the Kazakhstans and all the stands. Okay. Huge kingdom, and so they got to have to send word out. What he does, he, he, he casts lots, like rolls the dice or whatever, and to try to find out when should we do this. Very superstitious man. And he, he sets it, comes up with a date 11 months later. That he believes that this is the day when this needs to happen. We need to get rid of all the Jews. And um, so he goes to the king and tells the king, Look, there are some people, there's a man in our, in our city here in Sushan who, who refuses to, to acknowledge you, your king and, and your authority. And, and it's because he's a Jew. And you know what? We have these people all over the kingdom and their laws are strange and they don't you know, line up. with we, we need to get rid of them all. Oh, and by the way, I will give you $180 million, king, if we can do this. And the king thinks, well, this is a good idea. And so he signs the law. Do you remember last week when we talked about when they signed the law? The law according to the Medes and Persians. Remember that last week? Some of you? You guys out there? Yeah, you are. Okay. That's right. Which means it cannot be changed. And what he did is he said that on that day, 11 months in the future, that uh, the Jews were to be killed. 
wherever they were in the kingdom, they were to be killed and done away with. Now, just so you know, I mean, this is really kind of a, a side note, but we, I'm not going to pursue it. But do you understand that Satan desires to rid the world of the Jews? Because if he can rid the world of the Jews, first of all, if he could have rid the world of the Jews before Christ came, see, he thought he could stop God's plan. And since then, if he can rid the, the world of the Jews, then, then God can't fulfill the prophecies. I mean, so he's been at work, and we've seen this in, what, in Germany too, didn't we, right? I mean, over the years, there's been this kind of <clears throat> persecution of the Jewish people. But anyway, so there's the plan, 11 months out. And so the writing is signed and it is declared. And of course, it begins there in the area of the palace, Shushan, and, and then it gets sent out all the way across the kingdom. And um, so Mordecai gets to hear this and read this. And he is overwhelmed by this. And it says he, he, he started fasting and, you know, not eating, and he changes clothes. They put on what they call sackcloth. Uh, for clothing. Sackcloth is like a rough burlap kind of thing. And they would do that so that they would not be comfortable and, and they would um, kind of irritate themselves physically just to keep them focused on this bad thing that was going on. People would do this when they were in mourning. Um, so anyway, he is out there. He's outside of the king's palace in, in sackcloth. And word gets to Esther that your cousin Mordecai's out there in sackcloth and mourning and, and uh, she, she sends clothes for him and says, no, you, you need to change because see, you weren't allowed to come into the king's palace in sackcloth. You weren't allowed to do that. And so she wants to send him clothes. Come on, so you can come in and we can talk. And he refuses to do that. But what he does is he sends a message to Esther and says, here's what's happened. See, Esther is, is, is in the king's harem and she's there and she probably has no knowledge of this at all. And so he sends a message to her and he says, here's what's happened. And he explains to her the, the plan to kill all the Jews. And he says, you have to go into the king. You have to go in there. All right. And so that brings us up to what we want to look at in the Bible today. So let's turn to uh, the book of Esther, chapter 4. And if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, uh, we encourage you to pick one up from under the chairs and follow along. We're going to be on page 570 today. Page 570 in the Bible that's there under the chairs. Esther chapter 4. I already told a little bit of this story, but let's read it. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and eunuchs with his servants, male servants, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. And let me stop. I, I should have pointed out to you that uh, Mordecai, when he had had Esther uh, get involved in this beauty contest to become the, the king's wife, to become a queen, uh, he told her not to reveal that she was Jewish. Okay, so the king doesn't know that Esther's Jewish heritage. So he says, she, you've got to go and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants, so this is Esther speaking, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death. So you see that? If you just show up wanting to talk to the king, boom, you're dead. If he hadn't called for you, don't show up. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. So he could make a choice to, to set that law aside. It's not a law of the Medes and Persians. Uh, and he could let them live. He, then she says this, yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. It's been a full month since I've even seen him. So I can't do that. I'm not able to, to do what you're asking me to do, Mordecai. Verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from another place. And it will be delivered. God will deliver us somehow. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? Such an important question here. Yet who knows? whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, this may be the very reason that God has you where he has you. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. And just to very briefly wrap up the rest of the story, Esther does get to go before the king and the king does not have her killed. He allows her to come in and through a series of events, uh, she tells the king, listen, there's a plot out there to kill me because I'm Jewish and to kill all of my people. And the king is enraged. Who would do such a thing to have her killed, right? And she reveals it as Haman. Haman is immediately put to death. And the king can't change the law though, right? Law of the Medes and Persians cannot change it. So just like we saw last week, he makes another law and says that the Jews can defend themselves without any penalty on that same day. So the day finally comes and uh, the Jews defend themselves and not only just defend themselves, they end up, they defeat their enemies and they end up actually in a better place than they were before this had happened. The hand of God, obviously, at work. And so God used Esther to bring deliverance. But I want to um, 
focus in here now on just a few things for us that I think are important for us to understand. And the first one is this. It's, it's there in verse 14 when Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, maybe you have come to this place in the kingdom at this time for this very reason. In other words, it's not an accident that you are there. God has a purpose in it. God has a purpose in it. And I want you to say, today, say to you today, as we look through the scripture and read how God works and, and what he said to us and all this, that I, I can confidently say this to you today. Just like he had a purpose for Esther, he has a purpose for you. God has a special purpose for your life. He does. And it's easy for us to kind of feel lost with that from time to time and wonder, well, what is it, you know, and struggle with it. But I want you to settle in your heart and mind that God has a special purpose for my life. I may not be really clear on what it is at the moment, but I know he has that purpose. He has something that he wants to accomplish in and through me in my life. Now, one of the reasons I know this is because of what Paul said some 500 years later when he was in Athens and he was speaking to a crowd of, of philosophers and religious leaders and, and he says this to them in Acts chapter 17, talking about God and it says, and he has determined, talking about the people of the world, he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What does that mean? That means if on the big picture scale, God is telling us that, that he has determined where people live and when they live, what time in history they live, okay? God is a purposeful God. And if God has determined that you are living where you're living at this time in history, God has purpose in it, doesn't he? Now, you may not know what that is yet. You may not have the specifics yet, but you can know I am here at this time for God's purposes. This is no accident. God has something that he wants to do through my life. And Paul continues and he explains what the big picture purpose is for where God has put people. In the next verse he says, so that they should seek the Lord. So they should seek the Lord. Now, I want to encourage you here um, about the idea of being a witness. You know, sometimes we struggle with that, and I'm going to talk a little more about that in a little bit, but we, we struggle with that and, you know, because of how people respond, and we don't know if they'll be interested, and, and all sorts of things get in the mix there. But I want you to understand something, that those people that are in your life are where they are at this time in history, he did this because he wants them to seek the Lord and to come to know him. That means all the people around you in your life, God has placed them where they are on purpose. Could that start to change your thoughts about sharing your faith? That they are there on purpose. God has put them there. He wants to reach them and he put them where they are at this time in history so that he could reach them, so that they could be Reached, And so this idea of God doing this means two things today. First, if you have not received Christ as Savior, those of you watching, if you have not received Christ as Savior, that means that God is working in your life. 
He has you where you are. At this time in history, with the things that are going on in your life and around you, all of that with a desire to draw you to himself, that you might know him and that you might come to understand. You know, if, if you're here today, you're not here by accident. If you're watching today or whenever you're watching, you're not, it's not by accident. God is working in your life and he wants you to come and, and to receive Christ as Savior. All right? If you're here and already received Christ as Savior, you're part of the plan to reach people. And so you are where you are at this time in history because God wants you to reach the people around you. He wants to use you to do that. And so if God is much at work like that, why wouldn't we cooperate? What would keep us from doing that, embracing this purpose that he has for our lives? Well, I think in our text we see a couple of things that would cause us to, or could at least be part of the picture of why we wouldn't do this. So let's, let's go back and read verse 11 again. It says, all the king's servants, remember it was this, Mordecai said, you gotta go into the king, you gotta do something about this. And she says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that's a possibility that he may live, yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. And so she's saying, I don't have access. You think I have access, but I really don't have access. And I, I'm not particularly in the king's favor. He hasn't, you know, I'm the queen and he hasn't even seen me or talked to me or sent a message to me for the whole month. I, I, I'm not able to do this, all right? And so here, Here's an obstruction to accomplishing the purposes that God has given you. The first one, it's called purpose obstructions. First one is I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to do this. Now, you know, this is one of Satan's favorite lies to you. It's one of his favorite things he likes you to believe is that you don't have what it takes. Yeah, I know God says I'm supposed to, but I, I can't do it. I, and one reason it's one of Satan's favorite lies is because it's partly true. It's partly true. Because the truth is that on your own, in your own strength, in your own power, you cannot accomplish God's purposes. You cannot accomplish the things that God wants you to do. It's impossible. You have to depend on him. But here's the deal. If you depend on him, you are absolutely able to do what you need to do. And God can use it. You know, the Bible is not in vain that the Bible says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, does God mean that? Does he mean that? Are you really, you guys with me on that? He does mean that, doesn't he? I can do it. And so if God has a purpose for my life and I know that part of that purpose is he's put me where I am at this time in history to help draw people to him that they would come to know him, then oh, I'm scared to do that. I don't know. You know, I'm not smart enough to do that. I can't remember what I need to remember. I, I trip over my own words. I'm shy. I, on and on it goes. I, I'm not able to do this. When you say you're not able to do this, you have a very small picture of God. You have a very small view of God. 
Because you think, now think about this, this is kind of, you think about this, what you're saying is me, hear me, this me in this world, one person in the world that I alone can prevent God from doing something. Man, that's not a thing to say. We need to humble ourselves before God and say, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't, you know, I, I, I have struggles, I'm concerned, but you know what? I'm gonna do it, God, you, you enable me. I'll do it, I'll do what you tell me to do. And then what will God do? Everything he's promised to do. And, and it's not too hard for him. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, he says, I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? I'm the God of all the people. I can work in your life, in your life, in your life. You just need to humble yourself for me, depend on me, and step out and do it. Do it with me. And so that first obstruction is that I don't have what it takes. Well, you do if you depend on the Lord. You do have what it takes. And the second one is found in, and actually I'll show you, I'll explain this to you a little bit. Let's go back down to verse 16. So Esther has a change of mind. First she says, I, I'm not able to do this. I don't have what it takes. And then she has a change of heart. Verse 16, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. She had determined that she was willing to pay the ultimate price. You see that? I'm willing to pay whatever it costs now to do what God has given me to do at this time, this place in history. So the obstruction for us is this, is when we say, I don't want to pay the price. I don't want to pay the price. And you know, that sounds, man, you know, we, we really wouldn't want to just openly say that, would we? <laughs> I mean, here's Christ who came down from heaven, who gave that up, who becomes a man and lives in our sinful world and takes all the, the sins of, of the world, my sins, your sins, and dies on the cross, being guilty for them, and he never did those things. He's the one who was, talk about you know, getting treated wrongly, <laughs> I mean, he suffered all of that. Uh, he gave himself for us completely. We are bought with a price. And then for us to say, I don't want to pay that price. There's a price I don't want to pay that price. This is Jesus who told us that you cannot be my disciple unless you let go of everything. You got to let go of all of it. You know, let God do with it what he wants. If he lets you keep it, great. If he doesn't, great. But it doesn't matter. I've already determined. I've already determined I will pay the price. Whatever the price is, I will pay it. That's the call of being a Christian. And if you are not living with that kind of settled resolve, you really aren't living the Christian life. You're living your version of the Christian life. So, over the years, there have been a few times when I decided there was something on eBay that I wanted to buy. Have you ever done that? Gone on, how many of you ever looked on eBay and thought about buying something? I know we go to Amazon more now, but eBay, 
right? And it's cool because, wow, look, the price is, you know, only 10% of what this is worth. Oh, you know. And so I decided to put a bid on it. You know, a lot of people have learned about this thing. If you, if you just bid and then somebody else bids, what do you, what do, you do? Oh, you put another bid in. <laughs> and they put another bid in. If you aren't careful, next thing you know, you paid more than it was worth, right? I haven't done that, thankfully. But so they have this mechanism. What you do is you can put in the top price that you're willing to pay. And it automatically will bid for you. But it, it, it reaches that top price and it says, that's it, no farther. And that'll protect you when you're... You know, bidding for something on eBay. You won't spend more than you should. But I want to say to you that what we have done in our Christian lives is we have set a top price. And it's the wrong price. And, and I know this is true. I mean, because I, I know, because, you know, I struggle with this from time to time in my own life. I mean, I, I believe that I have really, if I've settled this once and for all, God, I will pay whatever price. And, you know, but then in the living it out, sometimes, you know, that's a struggle. But you keep working on it. But let me say to you that, um, and you're here today. That's good. Very, very good. But I, I, I see today that there are many, many people who say, church, I like church. I enjoy church. I will come whenever it works for me. I'll come when it's convenient, you know, when I, when I get up in time. I'll come do that. Yeah, I like church. Okay? But they say, but wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to come every week. Every Sunday, unless, you know, I'm too sick or I'm away and can't come, I should be here. Even if it's inconvenient, uh, I'm not willing to be that committed. I'm not willing to pay that price. Um, maybe in a marriage, you know. Yeah, I'm willing to stick in this marriage. I'll hang in here as long as it doesn't get too hard and as long as I can still do the things that are important to me. But what do you mean I'm supposed to sacrifice that stuff? And what do you mean I'm, I'm supposed to hang in there and work hard on it when it's just no fun? What do you mean? I'm not, I'm not willing to pay that price. You see how we set a top price? Hey, yeah, I'm glad to give money to things, you know, when things come up to the church. We, I, I give some money on a regular basis. I do that and something special comes up. I, you know, give some money here and there. But wait, wait, what do you mean start with a tithe? Start with 10% and give that every week. What do you mean? But what do you mean on top of that, give something to missions? And, and uh, that's a little too, I, I'm not willing to pay that price. Well, share my faith. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a good Christian and I, I, I try to live right in front of people. I'm friendly and nice and, and I help people and all that, you know, but I just don't ever really say anything because, oh man, it's just so uncomfortable to do that and, and they might not like it. They might not be interested. I might, uh, I'm not willing to pay. I don't want to be one of those people. I'm not willing to pay that price. You know, every time we make those decisions not to be willing to pay the ultimate price, whatever it is, we set a low top price. What are we saying to God about how we value what he's done for us? Yeah, I like what you've done for me, God, but not that much. 
Man, when you consider what God has done for us, he has saved us from an eternity in hell, an eternity in hell that we rightfully deserve. He has saved us from that. And we don't have to do a thing to get it except say, okay, I I know I need it and I want it and I believe. And and then he changes us and and our destiny is heaven and and he works in our lives and tries to get us to become what we're really designed to be. And he does all this stuff and we say, no, no, I'm just, no God, no thanks. I don't wanna go there. Wow. God forgive us for having that attitude. Man, if we are going to be Christians, really Christians, we've got to live our lives and say, if I perish, I perish. If it costs me, it costs me. If it's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable. But that's the life that God has called us to. And it's that life where you will discover that you are actually fulfilling God's purpose for you. And apart from that, you will miss it. And you will sit there someday alone in the quietness and say, what was the point? But it doesn't have to be that way. You can arrive at the end. Like the Apostle Paul did, said, you know what? I have finished the race that God has given me. I have done this. I have fulfilled it. You can be like Paul, who you need to live like him. He says, you know what? I realize that I'm going to be put to death down the line here somewhere. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't count my life dear to myself anymore. What's more important to me is accomplishing what God has given me to do. Most important thing to me in in the whole world. And so I want to take these negatives and turn them around as we end here. God has a special purpose for your life. He does. And you can succeed at it if you depend on the Lord. Depending on the Lord, you do have what it takes. And then finally understand that it will be worth whatever price you have to pay. It will be worth it. Believe that. Make the decisions. And let God do what he wants to do in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Esther, Lord. Thank you for her testimony of of choosing to step up in faith and say, if I perish, I perish, whatever. I've got to do what God has given me to do. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts with that. We we sang about it today, that that you have work to do in in this city around us, in the world of the people that need to be reached. And we are part of that picture. Part of your purpose for us is that. I pray, Father, we would embrace it. I pray we would not believe Satan's lie that we don't have what it takes because we do and we depend on you. And I pray, Father, we would not uh, live a selfish, small-minded world of I don't want to pay that price, but instead we would value you and value what you've given us to do so highly that we're willing to pay whatever price there is. You are worthy of this, so worthy. I pray you'd bring us to where we need to be here, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.